Well, I almost feel like I should reintroduce myself. My name is Michael Lawrence. I'm the senior pastor of this church. You guys, you guys haven't, haven't seen me in, in this spot in a, in a few weeks. Thank you, for, though, for, for giving my family the opportunity to be away on vacation. And thank you for your commitment to seeing the word of God preached and men raised up to preach that word, which means that sometimes I need to be out of the pulpit so that other guys can be in the pulpit. Um, I, I deeply desire that this congregation be a congregation that is committed to listening to the word and not the man. And I appreciate your commitment to that as well. So that said, though, it is very good to be back. Some of you will think him wise. Some of, some of you won't. But a, a, a man once said, you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. So sang Mick Jagger and Keith Richards in 1969. Some of you heard it live, or at least were around to have been able to hear it live. Others of us simply know it as what, what Rolling Stone recently called the 100th greatest song of all time. Yeah, you can take up that debate later. <laughs> Rolling Stone magazine, in, 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 in calling this song a, a great song, though, I think was, was on to something. Because even though Jagger and friends in that song were talking about love and, and politics and drugs, the, the truth of the matter is the lyrics captured something about human desire, something true about human desire. And the links that we will go to get what we want, or, or at least what we think we need in this life. So what is it that you want in life this morning? What do you need? I mean, deep down need. What are you willing to do? What are you capable of doing to get it? Maybe not questions that we like to ask of ourselves. But questions that we should ask. Because it is those deep desires that are so often driving the way we live our lives. This fall, we're starting a study in a new book. We're going to be studying the book of 2 Samuel. Or if I were in Britain, I would say 2 Samuel, because they're very literal over there in Britain. And they just read it as it comes. So 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Uh, we, look, we looked at 1 Samuel a, a couple of years ago in the fall. And uh, this fall, we're, get, we're going to finish it. And of course, that makes sense because actually it's not two books, it's one book. There, when, when it was originally written... There's just the book of Samuel. And somewhere along the way, actually, when the Hebrew was translated into the Greek, it got, it got divided into two books. And so I did you all a real disservice two years ago. I left you hanging right in the middle of a book. And so it's time that we come back and finish it. This book of Samuel, in the second half that we're going to look at, was written over the course of many decades 
mainly by three different prophets, the prophet Samuel, the prophet Nathan and the prophet Gad. Uh, probably there, there was a later editor that came along and took their writings and put it into the shape that we have it. And it came into its current form about 1000 B.C. Now, second Samuel or the second half of the book of Samuel is, is the story of David's rise to the throne. His fall from the throne. And then his return as king. And as we follow that arc over the course of this fall, one of, one of the things that we're going to notice is that that one point of the book of Second Samuel is to vindicate David, is to vindicate his claim, his, his desire for the throne of Israel over against the house of Saul. I mean, repeatedly, as we go through this series, we are going to be confronted with a cast of historical figures who want something and are driven by that desire to get it. They want a throne. Or they want a woman. Or, or, or they want respect. Or they want redemption. And what we're going to see are, are the lengths that these people are going to go to get just what it is that they want. As, as a result, what, what we're about to enter into this, this fall is, I think, the book of the Bible that most deservedly would get an R rating. Okay, this is this is the most R rated book, I think, in, in the whole of the Bible. It is full of blood. It is full of murders. It is full of intrigue. It is full of sex. The Game of Thrones has nothing on the book of Second Samuel. But this book is not just a, a court Drama. It, it, it doesn't try to sugarcoat all the rest of that stuff. It doesn't try to hide all of the political intrigue and drama and immorality. It doesn't hide that at all. Scripture takes a very realistic view on life. But at the end of the day, that's not the point. At the end of the day, the, the point of the, the book of Second Samuel, Samuel as a whole, is not to vindicate David, but to vindicate God. To vindicate God's promise to establish a king over his people who would build a house, a, a temple for God's name and, and a kingdom that would not end. This story, and it is a good story, is real history. With its tragic fall and its, its poignant redemption. It's a story that ultimately points beyond David and beyond the kingdom of Israel to David's greatest son, Jesus Christ. And the very kingdom of God, whose throne Jesus Christ sits upon. So if you would turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 470. 470, 2 Samuel chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the first four chapters. Now, most of the time, we're going to be looking at, at slightly smaller sections, one or two chapters at a time. But right here at the beginning, we're going to look at four chapters, which, which means, sadly, I'm not going to be able to read all of it. We're going to be moving around a bit. So I think you're going to find it very helpful if you keep your Bibles open. I'm going to be referring to chapters. Those are the big numbers on the page in front of you. And verses, those are the small numbers. 
on the page in front of you. So 2 Samuel chapter 1, and let me just read the first four verses as, as the book opens. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked me. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead. Now flip over to uh, chapter five, just a couple of pages. Flip over to chapter five. I'm going to start uh, there at verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. All right, you see what's happened right there. Chapter one opens. David is just learning of Saul's death. This man has come and given the message. As chapter five opens... He's being crowned king over over all of Israel. So so what that's telling us is that these first four chapters of the book of Second Samuel are the narrative of how that reign was secured, how David secured the reign over all of Israel. These chapters cover these first four chapters cover the space of probably about seven years, maybe not quite seven, but, but close to seven years. And the passage is framed very carefully. It's framed at the beginning, at the end, by two murders, followed by their, their, their executions. In between those two murders and the two executions, you, you've got civil war led by two opposing generals. But in the very center, the center of it all, stands David, the, the man who God promised to make king. So, so the question as we move through these first four chapters really is, what is David willing to do in order to see God's promise fulfilled? He wants to be king. God has said he's going to be king. What is he willing to do to see that that promise comes true? As we consider the answer, what I want you to do really is not just think about David. I want you to think about your own life. What is it that you want God to do for you this morning? What are you willing to do to see that it happens? Now, if you're taking notes, as we move through these these four chapters, there's there's a, a structure to it. First, we're going to look at the king pleasers, the king pleasers that we see in chapter one and in chapter four. Then second, we're going to consider the king makers. The king makers in chapters two and in chapter three. And then finally, third, 
the king in the center of it all. So the king pleasers, the king makers, and the king. And as you can tell, because of the way that this section is set up, we're not going to move through it sequentially. We're going to look at chapters 1 and 4 together, and then chapters 2 and 3 together. I think you'll follow. So first, let's, let's look at the king pleasers. Turn, turn back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, we're actually back chronologically in 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're back in Ziklag with David. He's just returned from a raid on the Amalekites in which he destroyed the Amalekites who had taken all of their families captive. And he's brought them all back safely. Saul and his army at exactly the same time have been overrun by the Philistines. And Saul and his sons, particularly Jonathan, are dead. But but as chapter one opens, David doesn't know that. David's been off on his own separate raid. And he is only just now learning as this man, this Amalekite, comes and tells him the story of what had happened to Saul. Now, immediately the question is, why is this man so concerned to come tell David? I mean, he's Amalekite and Amalekite, the Amalekites just got wiped out by David, right? David's just spent the last several days killing Amalekites. What's up with this man and why is he so eager to be the one that brings David the news that Saul is dead? Well, let's pick up the conversation in verse five. And David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. You see, it turns out that this man is not just a runner who's been sent to give a report. He's actually taken this upon himself, and he has come to David hoping for a reward. He's brought the crown of Israel to David. He's brought the royal insignia from Saul's dead body to David. And, and what's more, he wants to make sure David doesn't miss this point. He's the guy that did the deed. He's the one that finished off Saul, David's enemy. You see, this man is assuming that, that, of course, David wants to be king. And therefore, he's assuming that David is going to be really pleased when he learns that Saul is dead. And what's more, he'll be really pleased with the messenger who brings the news. Because that's what ancient Near Eastern monarchs used to do. The, the messenger who brought the good news got a good reward. But even more than that, he's not just the messenger. He's the guy. He's the guy that, 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 that delivered the killing stroke. And you can hear it in his voice. Hope against hope. I may be an Amalekite, but I'm going to be in good with David. I am going to be rewarded. We're bringing this really great news. Now, now, is the man telling the truth? 
His details differ from the account of Saul's death that we see in 1 Samuel 31. And those differences actually could be evidence that he's just made up the story in order to enhance his own role, in order to enhance the reward that he's going to get from bringing this news. Or it could be, honestly, that what we see here are the telltale signs of the fog of war. In which in the confusion of war, we get partial and conflicting accounts from different people. And, and the author honestly doesn't even try to, to straighten it out because that's not his point. Either way, whether the man is lying or whether this is just evidence of the, of the fog of war, the man is clearly trying to curry favor with David. He assumes what David wants, the crown, and he assumes that David is willing to do whatever it takes to get it and will be only too happy to reward the man who helps him. Now flip over to chapter 4. A lot has happened by the time we get to chapter 4. At least two years of civil war has passed. And, and this man named Ishbosheth, which is the, the one surviving son of Saul, has been reigning as king over the northern tribes for two years. But as chapter 4 opens, the tide has turned. Uh, Ishbosheth's main general, his leading general, has been killed. And and it's clear that that public opinion in the north is shifting away from Ishbosheth and it's beginning to shift towards David. And it's at that moment that two brothers, the sons of a man named Ramon, see their opportunity. And they sneak into Ishbosheth's house while he's while he's taking a nap. They've brought a big sack with them because they've told people outside that they're just going inside to get some grain that's stored in the house because they're they're some of Ishbosheth's captains. And so they sneak into the house and once they're in, they kill him and they behead him. And they put the head in that sack and then they leave and of course everybody sees the bulging sack and they think nothing of it because they were going in to get grain, not knowing that there's a head in the sack. And they make their way to Hebron, where David is, certain of David's reaction and certain of their anticipated reward. Look at chapter four, verse seven. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. And after they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head and taking it with them. They traveled all night by way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. You see what's going on here? At the beginning and at the end of this civil war between the house of David and the house of Saul, the assumption that really everybody has is that David wants the crown and he'll take it any way he can get it. And along the way, people like the brothers of uh, the sons of Ramon or this Amalekite assume that if they just give David what he wants, then they'll be able to get what they want. David wants the crown. If I can give him the crown, David will give me what I need, what I want. And friends, it's in that dynamic that I think we have an amazing picture of how we so often relate to God. We assume 
that we know what God wants. What does God want? God wants me to be good. What, what does God want? God, God, God wants me to uh, be religious. God wants me to come to church. God, God wants me to do good deeds. You fill in the blank. What is it that you think that God wants from you? And then we assume that if we can just give God what he wants, he'll give us what we want. What do we want? Maybe it's heaven. Maybe it's a successful life here on earth. Maybe it's a wife or, or a husband. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's obedient kids. Whatever it is, like the young Amalekite, like the two sons of Ramon, we assume that we know what God wants and we assume that we can please him by giving him what he wants and so get him, really obligate him, to give us back what we want. Honestly, at this point now, what we deserve. Because we gave him what he asked for. We, we gave him what he wants. How does God respond to that sort of, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine kind of relationship? Well, I think he responds just like David did. Look back, look back at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 13. David said to the young man who brought him the report, where are you from? I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his own men and said, go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Now flip over back to, to chapter 4. Verse 9. The brothers have just announced to David that they've done him this great favor. And David says in verse 9, David answered Rechab and his brother Banah, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all trouble... When a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. They took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. David makes it very clear at the beginning and at the end that he had nothing to do with the murders of Saul and Ishbosheth. David is offended at the thought that he would that anyone would think that he would rejoice at Saul's death, that he would take advantage of Ishbosheth's murder. Both times he confronts. The, the confessed murderer, he, he rebukes them and then he executes judgment. And, and friends, God, God is no different. Like the king that he is, 
God is offended at the suggestion that we can buy him off with a little bit of morality. That, that, that somehow we can we can put him in our debt with with whatever amount of religion we can muster up. Now, friends, God is holy. God is majestic. He's the king and he is our king because he created us. And we owe him far more than a few good deeds. And trying hard to be good. We owe him our our exclusive and our, our total allegiance. We, we owe him our, our very lives. We owe him our worship, which means far more than just the songs that we sing here on Sunday morning. It means the engagement of all that I am all the time with all that he is in service of him. That's, that's what biblical worship is. And that is what we owe our king. Not just our good deeds. Not, not just our, our church attendance. No, no, we owe him everything. And to suggest that anything less will do is to completely misunderstand who he is and who we are. Just as badly as that Amalekite misunderstood who David was and who he was. It's to treat God as if, you know, he's one of our peers and we can strike a deal. We can work out a mutually advantageous bargain. And so it is to treat him that way, to earn his judgment, to earn his wrath for offending his holy majesty. And it may be that that is where some of you are this morning. Having approached God your whole lives as someone that you could buy off with good deeds. You could buy off with religion. This passage, and in fact the whole book of Second Samuel, is meant to be a mirror. Not just ancient history, but a mirror to hold up in front of us and see what we're really like. So that we can see ourselves clearly. Some of us this morning need to see this. Need to see that we've been trying to buy God off and begin to recognize that it doesn't work. But it's not just the Amalekites and the sons of Ramon that are, hold, that are, that are held up to us for us to find ourselves in. No, there are more than king pleasers here. In these chapters, we also see king makers. King makers. Look at chapter two. Chapter two, verse eight. We're going to meet some more people. Chapter two, verse eight. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead. Ashuri and Jezreel and also over Ephraim, Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel and he reigned two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. 
Joab, son of Zeruiah and David's men, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. In these verses, we are introduced to the two great generals on either side of the civil war between the house of David and the house of Saul. On the one hand is Abner. Abner is, is actually Saul's brother. So he's Ishbosheth's uncle. On the other hand is Joab. Joab also has a, a family relationship here. Joab is David's nephew. Zeruiah is David's brother. Now, rather, in, in chapters 2 and 3, rather than recount all of the many battles that must have taken place between the house of Saul and, and the house of David, the, the author focuses really on the relationship and the contrast between these two generals, these two great men representing the two houses. Now, as we've already, we've already seen that Abner actually made Ishbosheth king. I mean, they just say it right there in, in, in chapter 2. Abner had taken Ishbosheth and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead. There, there's a kingmaker for you. Now, Joab didn't actually make David king over Judah. The, the tribe of Judah uh, came and did that its, itself on, on its own, as, as we'll see here in a minute, as the text makes clear. But as the story goes on, it is very clear that Joab thinks that it's up to him to save David from himself. And to keep David king. So, so turn over to chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 24. Chapter 3, verse 24. Lots of things have happened. Really important event that we'll get to in just a minute. But verse 24, Joab, Joab went to the king and he said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now, now he's gone. You know Abner, son of Ner, he came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. You hear the tone there? I mean, the general is lecturing the king. The general assumes that the king does not know what he's doing, that he does not know how to take care of himself, that he's way too easy to take advantage of. And he can't believe that he wasn't there to protect David from his own stupid mistake. Both men, both Joab and Abner, know that God has promised to make David king over all Israel. And eventually, as the story plays itself out, both men decide that it's up to them to make sure that it happens. Now, the story of these two men is, is poignant and it's dramatic, and I wish we had time to read all the way through chapters 2 and 3, and we don't. So I'm just going to have to summarize it for you. Uh, in the early days of the civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner kills Joab's brother in battle. His name was Asahel. It's clear as you read the narrative, Abner didn't want to kill Asahel. He tried really hard not to kill Asahel. He warned Asahel to go fight somebody else. I don't want to fight with you. But Asahel persisted. And, and in the end, Joab, uh, Abner kills him. It, it, it appears that it's accidental, that he didn't actually mean to kill him. But in, in the heat of battle, that's what happens. 
and Asahel falls. In the course of time, Ishbosheth, right, the son of Saul, the king up in the north, he manages to offend Abner so badly that Abner decides, that's it, I'm done, I'm changing sides. And he declares to Ishbosheth, I'm now going to give the kingdom to David, just as God promised. Look at, look at chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said, and he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. As, as we read on in chapter 3, Abner follows through on his word. He, he opens up negotiations with David. But it's in the process of what appears to be successful peace negotiations that Joab sees his chance for revenge. He wants to revenge his brother's death. And so we've already read, first, Joab rebukes David for totally blowing it. Of course you shouldn't be in peace negotiations with Abner. Of course you shouldn't have let him go. You should have killed him right there on the spot. And, of course, now we know why Abner wants, and why Joab wants Abner killed right there on the spot. Joab's not just interested in seeing the kingdom of David established. Joab is interested in revenge. And so at that point, Joab goes behind David's back. He lures Abner back to Hebron, sets a trap for him. Abner's completely unaware of the trap that's just been set, falls into it, and is murdered by Joab in cold blood. What do we make of these two would-be king makers? As you read through chapters 2 and 3, it's very clear these are two Proud men. They have reason to be proud. They are very accomplished. They have incredible political skill. They have incredible military expertise. They, they appear to be big men. They appear to be strong men. But they are proud men. Both seek to establish a kingdom through their own might, through their own wisdom, through their own political skill. And both... Do what they're doing because they're convinced that unless they act, God's promise is going to fail. That, that it's actually up to them to accomplish what God has said God will do. And when we heard it straight out in Abner's boast, I will do for David what the Lord promised him on earth. Do you catch that? I will do for David what the Lord said the Lord would do. We hear it negatively in Joab's fear. What have you done? Why did you let him go? We've missed our opportunity for justice and for the kingdom. Once again, friends, the mirror is being held up for us. Not to learn something about two ancient generals, but to learn something about ourselves. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you're a Christian, I wonder what promise that God 
has made to you that you feel like, frankly, it's up to me to make sure it happens. It's up to me to keep God's promise for him. I think so often it's right here that we get at the root of our sin. So we know that God has promised that to, to, to satisfy us, to, to fill us, to fill us with joy. But honestly, we're not sure he's up to the job. And so we find ourselves turning to other things, other things that we can now use and manipulate to give us satisfaction, to, to, to make us happy, to, to make us feel complete. We, we know that God has promised to, to keep us safe and secure, that, that, that ultimately nothing will harm his children. And yet we walk through this life and, and we find ourselves thinking there is no way that that promise is compatible with the suffering that I'm experiencing right now. And so I better get busy helping God keep his promise for me. I better get busy building a life that is as safe and as secure and as pain free and suffering free as I know how to make it. We know that God promises that in all things he will work for the good of those who love him. That's a, that's a promise of redemption. That, that's a promise that God will redeem the brokenness and pain of our lives. And yet, so often, we don't trust that promise. We, we like it. We, we believe it. But not that God's going to do it. And so we begin, instead of trusting him, we begin to manipulate the people around us. We begin to try to control the situations of our lives because we're trying to control for an outcome. I want an outcome that's good. And some of us are really good at this. Some of us are great controllers. Some of us are great managers of people and circumstances and situations. And we spend a lot of effort trying to keep God's promise for him. Because we don't think he's going to meet us there in the pain. We don't really believe that, that what I'm going through right now can turn out for good. And so I've got to change it. I've got to change the circumstances. I've got to change the people. I mean, parents, don't we, don't we experience this with our kids? Right? We, we, don't, we don't trust God to redeem our kids, so we get busy trying to fix them. Control them. So that we don't have to feel the pain of children who disobey or who, or who disappoint or whose lives aren't turning out the way we hoped they would. Whose lives aren't turning out the way we thought redemption would look like. We do this to our spouses. We don't trust God to redeem the pain and the brokenness in our marriage. And every marriage has pain. Every marriage has brokenness. And so we get busy trying to control. Control that spouse. Control the circumstances of my marriage. So that I don't feel that pain anymore. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it better. 
It's not just our personal lives. We do this together as a church. Henson, are we ever guilty of trying to accomplish the promises of God for him? We know that God promises to save sinners, but, but instead of trusting in the power of the gospel, do we resort to, to manipulation, trying to wrest a, a quick decision from somebody for Jesus? Do, do, do we begin to think that it's, it's our music that brings people into the church or, or our children's program that, that will really build the kingdom here rather than the Holy Spirit? Do do we find ourselves downplaying the hard edges of the gospel and the hard edges of Scripture? Because we really don't trust that God can use his word the way it's written to bring anybody to know him. We got to nice it up. We got to avoid the hard bits. Do we assume that they're just some cultural trends that we're just going to have to make our peace with and accept, not speak out against? Downplay God's truth because there's no way anybody would ever listen to us if they knew what we really believed. Do we begin to trust our programs and our methods more than the ordinary means of grace that God has given us in his word and in prayer? In baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in corporate worship and in speaking the truth and love to one another. Friends, I think. If you're anything like me, and I think you're something like me, I think you, like me, spend way too much time trying to keep God's promises for him, and way too little time learning to trust him, trust him in that that place of great need, trust him in that place of great pain or hurt, trust him in that that place that means so much to us that, that he will actually come through. He will actually keep his promise. Maybe not the way I want him to. But he'll do it. You know, for all their similarities, for all their attempts to bring about the promises of God. I don't think we're meant to walk away from Joab and Abner assuming that they're exactly the same. And it's in the difference that I think there's hope for us. Us people who try to be God for God and keep his promises for him. As we read through these chapters, we see that Abner begins to change. It's it's Abner who calls for a truce, whereas Joab will have no mercy. It's it's Abner who in the end, uh, yeah, he's provoked and his motives aren't perfect. But in the end, Abner turns to peace. Joab persists in war. Abner changes from the wrong side to the right side, whereas Joab in the end proves that the only side he was ever on was his own side. In the end, Abner is eulogized by David, while Joab is cursed by David and eventually executed for his crimes by David's son Solomon. It's true, as you read through these chapters, Abner was no saint. But I think he begins to give us a picture of repentance. Whereas Joab is a man who persists in doing what is right in his own eyes. And it's really important to see, as you read through these chapters, Abner, Abner dies early. 
The man who repents, the man who changes, he dies early. Joab, Joab lives to see Solomon on the throne. Repentance doesn't gain Abner a longer life. It gains him something much better. It gains him the love and the approval of the king. When you think about the need to repent, to change, to turn away from trying to be God for God, check your motives. Why are you repenting? Are you, are, are you, are you, are you repenting to, to avoid judgment? Are you, are, are you repenting so that hopefully now God will make things go well in your life? No, friends, the goal of repentance is the love and the approval of God the King. That's what repentance brings. Hold on to that thought. I said at the outset that this passage is meant to show us what David is willing to do to get what he wants. So in stark contrast to the the king pleasers who think they can obligate the king, in stark contrast to the king makers who think that the king needs their help, stands David, the king. What is the king willing to do to get what he wants? Well, as it turns out, all he's willing to do is trust God. All he's willing to do is to wait for God to keep his promises. Throughout these chapters, again and again, we see in David a man who refuses to take matters into his own hands. This is what's behind his execution of the Amalekite and the sons of Ramon. It's, it's what's behind his, his moving Poetic tribute to Saul and to Jonathan that finishes out chapter one. David, David's not just protecting his reputation. This isn't show. David is demonstrating that he will not, he will not make himself king. But he will wait for God to do it. This is what's behind his cursing of Joab and his blessing of Abner in Abner's death. Hebron, where David had set up his capital, Hebron was a city of refuge. Cities of refuge were set up for places where people who had committed manslaughter could flee in order to avoid the bloodshed of revenge. Joab had no right to take revenge for a death that occurred in battle. He certainly didn't have right to to use a city of refuge in order to accomplish his own bloody revenge. And so, though it was to his own ultimate advantage to see yet another one of Saul's relatives done away with, David stands with Abner. David stands for justice. And he blesses the brother of Saul. And he curses his own nephew. Perhaps one of the most beautiful examples of all of this patient trust, though, in God is found at the beginning of chapter 2. Turn there. Chapter 2. Saul is dead. Israel and the kingdom appear ripe for the taking. All that needs to happen is for David to kind of march in. But does he do it? Verse 1. In the course of time... David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? 
to Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Do you see what's going on there? David, who knows the promise. David, who's just heard that Saul is dead. David does not presume that now is the time I become king. He waits on the Lord. He prays. And he says to the Lord, should I go? And the Lord says, yes. And then he says, well, well, where should I go? And and the Lord says, to Hebron. And And then what does he do? His very first act as king, he sends messengers to the city of Jabesh Gilead. You've probably forgotten about that city. But early on in 1 Samuel, that's the city that Saul saves. That convinces everybody that Saul should be king. The men of Jabesh-Gilead owed Saul their very lives. They are loyal to Saul. And so when Saul dies, they go at great risk to themselves and they recover his body and they give it a proper burial. And in the ancient Near East, to show loyalty to the old king when the new king has arisen is to take your very life into your hands. What does David do? He sends the messengers and he says to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, You did the right thing by honoring Saul. You have nothing to fear from me. In fact, I'm going to honor you because you honored Saul. What's the result of this faith in God, this this trust that God will give him the kingdom in God's good time, that he doesn't need to take it? Well, God blesses David. We see it throughout One of the best statements of it is in chapter 3, verse 36. I'll just read it. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. This is the story of these chapters. The the men of Judah and then, as we saw in chapter 5, eventually the men of Israel coming of their own accord and elevating David to the throne. David didn't have to manipulate anybody. He didn't have to make it happen. He simply had to wait And trust in God. Now you notice, and I've I've tried to make it clear, this this passage is set up like a series of brackets, almost like Russian dolls. You've got the the murders at at the two ends and the executions. And then you've got these poems that eulogize the men who were murdered. And then you've got these two contrasting generals. Everything has its matching pair, except right in the center. Chapter three, verse one. All of a sudden, we get this statement right here in the middle, and it's almost like a genealogy. Verses 1 to 7. There's no parallel for these. It kind of feels out of place. It's just a list of David's wives and the sons that were born to him in Hebron. But friends, because these chapters have been so carefully put together with all of these pairs, and there's this one thing right in the center that is not duplicated, The author is clearly trying to tell us something here. 
We're actually meant to pay attention to this little genealogy that we're likely to just skip over. What is he trying to tell us? Listen. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Machah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithriam, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. The conclusion is right up front. David and the house of David grew stronger and stronger. The house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. But it's the why, that conclusion, that's so important. The why, why we got there. Why is it that David's growing stronger and Saul is growing, Saul's house is growing weaker? Was it that David had a better general? Was it that he had a stronger army? Was it that, that he had better tactics? Well, not at all. It's because he's, because of God. God, who is the true king at the center of it all. Because see, what we see God doing right here is the thing that only God can do. He builds David's house. He opens the womb. He gives him sons. This is the point of the list of sons. Six sons born to David in Hebron. Six gifts from the Lord. Six tokens of God's favor towards David. Much later, Solomon, who who isn't even born yet, would write Psalm 127. And this is what Solomon would say. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, sons born in one's youth, Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. This is why we get a list of sons in the middle of the story of a civil war. David trusted in God. David again and again refused to take matters into his own hands. And so God took matters into God's own hands. And God built David's house. God raised David to the throne. And friends, in this story of the reign of David being secured, David not only shows us what it looks like to trust God. David points us to Jesus. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus knew, just as David knew, that he was the anointed one. That he was the promised son of David, the Messiah and king that God's people had been waiting for. And as he preached his message, the people around him, both his disciples and others, kind of began to become aware of this claim. Jesus didn't hide it. And so as his ministry goes on, the people around Jesus urge him again and again to just take what is his own, to take what is rightfully his. 
His his disciples were impatient for him to usher in the kingdom and go ahead and reveal yourself as king. His his own brothers mocked him and told him to, to go ahead and just reveal yourself. Satan tempted Jesus to force God's hand to, to take a shortcut to the kingdom. But through it out, throughout it all, again and again and again, Jesus, the true king, the anointed one, the son of God himself, waited patiently for God to do what God had promised to do. He waited through the years of obscurity in Bethlehem and Nazareth. He waited through the years of popularity in Galilee. He waited through the agony of his betrayal and his trial and his execution. And and on the cross even, when he was tempted one last time to call down legions of angels and just to go ahead and enter into the kingdom in glory and in a much easier way, he waited. Trusted in God. Finally, entrusting his spirit into the Lord's hands. And he was buried. And three days passed. And finally, the waiting of our Lord Jesus was over. And God raised him from the dead. And after spending 40 days with his disciples, Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down, not on a throne in Jerusalem, but on the throne of heaven itself to reign over the kingdom of God. As Paul says in Philippians chapter two, though being in very nature, God, he that is Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself still further and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus waited and trusted in God And God vindicated that trust. Friends, where do we find ourselves in this passage? As we stare at this mirror that is being held up to us. It's not with David. At least not first. Friends, we must first recognize that we are that Amalekite. We are those sons of Ramon. We are the ones who have raised our hands Against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, his blood is on our heads. We are the ones who brought Jesus to the cross. We are the ones whose offense against God's majesty nailed him there. And we deserve the curse of the king. And the execution of his judgment. We deserve for that blood to be on our heads in judgment. And yet the good news of the gospel is that judgment has not yet fallen. And it is possible for that blood to be on our heads 
in an entirely different way. Not in judgment, but in blessing. So the question is, are we going to identify with Joab, who persists in his stubborn pride, who persists in doing what is right in his own eyes, or will we identify with Abner, who repented and humbly approached the king and sued for peace? Friends, the good news of the gospel is that it's not too late to change. It's not too late to repent of our attempts to force God's hand, to manipulate God. It is not too late, Christian, to repent of trying to be God for God. It will involve humbling yourself. It will involve admitting that you are wrong. It will mean suing for peace with God, just as Abner sued for peace with David. But the good news is that when we do, King Jesus responds just as King David did to Abner. He treats his former enemy as a friend. He, he lays out a feast for us. And then he sends us away in peace. Not to stay away, but to go and invite friends to come back and enjoy the feast with us. That's exactly what David did with Abner. And it is what Jesus does with us. It doesn't matter who you are here this morning. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian already or if, if you're not yet a Christian. The question for everyone in this room is will you trust him right where you are, in all that you are? What is it that you want from God this morning? Is it peace with him? Is it, is it to be welcomed into his love and into his embrace? Friend, if that is what you want, then know for sure that you can get what you want. Not by trying harder, but by trusting in Jesus Christ. Trusting in the exalted King who humbled himself for you. Let's pray. Father, everything in our lives, everything in our heart seems to scream against trusting you. Our, our, our experiences, our, our eyes, the, the people around us constantly tell us to do for ourselves. Or we pray that you would you give us eyes to, to, to read your word in Second Samuel and to see the truth of our trustworthy God as it's displayed in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us the faith to trust him. To trust him with promises of forgiveness. To trust him with promises of life. To trust him with promises of hope that are so important to us that we cannot bear the thought that they would fail. Give us repentance, Lord Jesus, from that false notion that these promises are so important that we have to keep them ourselves. And instead, bring us to trust in you. And we ask this in, in your name. Amen.